The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry with Joe McGill. Good morning, good morning, how are you this morning? I'm Joe McGill and you're listening to the Saturday Supplement and I hope I find you well wherever you are listening to us around the world on the Radio Kerry app or on radiokerry.ie or on the traditional wireless 96 to 98 FM. A big welcome to all our roses that are in the county at the uh, moment. We hope you enjoy your few days here and we hope you have memories or make memories that last a lifetime and there's a great atmosphere around Tralee Town here as well so it promises to be a great few days ahead and later on we'll be talking about the first ever uh, Rosa Tralee Festival as well. We had a live from the past we did and I'll play you that in the next hour. Nothing but rain all night. I hope you got some kind of a sleep. It was fairly wild out there. Storm Betty was baiting the the roofs and the the roads and on the way up there's a bit of debris on the roads so mind yourself if you're out in the roads around the uh, county as well would you believe I bought myself my first proper barbecue now this summer wasn't I optimistic but I tell you I'm knocking use out of it because even if it's pouring rain down outside I'll still have a barbecue and uh, we've kind of this outdoor shelter so it's actually ideal do you know so you, you kind of have to you have to get on with it and um, this weather you heard there in the um news about it being one of the worst years on record for farmers and the problem with hay. Well, we're going to remember happier times of hay making because we will be talking to Shane Lehan, no stranger to this uh, programme um, uh, very shortly. And we'll also be talking to Tar- Tarbert Farmer and local historian Donald O'Connor about the happy days of making the uh, hay and uh, we'll be talking to Donald a little later on. We'll be having our speaking of poetry slot with Bernadette um, Nivreda and uh, we'll be also telling you about um, very interesting lectures that are going on in Kells um, around uh, the Fenians and um, Johnny Golden and lots more besides and I'll tell you about that in the next hour as well. If you want to get in touch with the programme 066 712 uh, you can text or WhatsApp 083 300 Now, listen to this. In the corner of my mind there's an idyllic memory of a perfect summer's day spent saving hay in a sun-blazed sweet-scented field of gold in South Kerry. It is a scene as clear to me as if they're plucked directly from a Seamus Heaney poem or from Brian Friel's Dancing at Lunasa. These are the words of Shane Lehan, who is course director of cultural and heritage studies in Cork College of Further Education and Training, Tremore Road Campus Cork. He's lectured in archaeology, folklore, history and the arts for over 32 years and has developed a programme of studies that facilitates both young and mature students to progress to arts and humanities programmes at third level. And that excerpt I read you there was from an article he wrote in the Farmer's Journal and he joins me now to, to relive these wonderful memories. Shane, that is just uh, absolutely idyllic. Was it always that way? Uh, well, Joe, it is. You know, when when I think of it, 
how how lucky I was, how lucky my family were to have such beautiful cousins and aunts and uncles down in Port McGee. And I suppose we, we always romanticise these things, you know, or like, you know, you're talking about the weather now, but I suppose the weather in the past, it was always sunny. But I have to say, and I have to say with reality, we were welcomed down to my aunt and uncle, my Auntie Mary, my, my father's sister, and my lovely uncle John, down to Achiada, down to Port McGee, and we were down there every summer. And my goodness, the, the level of hospitality, the level of welcome, a house full of smiles, full of fun, full of stories. It was every single day was magical. And I can say that it wasn't romanticized. It actually was, you know. Yeah. And thinking back, you know, we used to go down from the city and we were brought into a different world altogether. Into a world of, like, we'd be up to the cow house. My Uncle John would be down, he'd have the bucket, he'd be milking the cows by hand. Next minute you'd get a squirt of milk into the face, you know, he'd, he'd squirt <laughs> up. And, you know, the the, the the, the, the fun that we had the kind of the messing that was there but we'd go off like to that time do you know there was no running water at that time we as children yeah. used to go to the well we'd have the canister and we'd bring it off and we'd get the go to the well and that was our job we'd be turning turf like inside in the bog you know mm-hmm. and all of that but going back to that day that day of the hay like you know not just that day but it it was probably over the course of a week we were there you know or longer and like if the weather was fine that was that's what it was all about that was the day that you'd go out then there would be all hands all hands to the pump so to speak we'd be all out my father my mother my brothers my and my sister all the cousins that were down that time there'd be a fierce mail that time there was a man Jackie Kennedy I think he had the the rake he was and my my uncle John he had the pony he had the horse and that time then they would tackle up the pony and uh, they'd have this contraption you really have to call it because uh, unless you saw it working it was like a a marvel it was this 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 turning sort of the the the, the tosser as we call it the the hay tosser it would yeah. it would it would toss all the, the the hay that had been cut um that had been cut previously by the mowing machine you know which had this incredible bar in front of it with the with the teeth on it and talons sticking out and that used to cut it down to at a, a, a fierce uh, low level altogether but we were all in then uh, you know we were turning it and we'd all be given you know no matter what age you were you'd be given a two-pronged pike, big long handle. And, you know, when you were young, you didn't know how to manage it. But over time, you'd watch and you'd learn. And we became really adept at, at, at turning and, 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 you know, tossing the, the hay into the air. And then when it came to the day of making then the, first of all, the small cocks, like you'd, you, the, the day of saving the hay really was, was when it was raked into the swords and then you'd come along and the excitement was you'd make them into small little cocks first but the big wines of Hayden as we call them the wines were the was the big day this was the last day of, of saving it and what you would do then is that the the older lads that were there I suppose the, the, the Tadies I remember they were there and, and the Kennedys Andrew Kennedy others they, they would they were the older ones they would set out the size of the wines and we would then be bringing in uh, large pikefuls of hay and I suppose the fun of it the fun of it was as how much hay could you get onto the two prong pike, you know? Uh, you know, the heavier it was, the better it was, you'd be lifting it up. And, you know, as it grew then, it grew up in size, you'd have someone it, it the best joy of all was if you were the fellow elected to go into the centre of the wine to, to tidy up the hay as it came in, in the pike. 
and it would be coming in, Joe, on all sides. It would be coming in from every direction. And you'd want you to know, watch yourself. The, <laughs> you would, you know, because because and funnily enough, whatever it was, you'd pull out as soon as the hay landed. You'd pull out the pike because you didn't want anyone to get hurt inside or whatever. But it, it grew higher and it grew higher. And if you were inside, it was it was it was fun, you know. Like there was there was smiles, there was there was all sorts of 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 gashka going on at that time. It was just magical. And I remember being up on top of them, and you'd be like, we were young, you see. So the, it was the small fella, the young yeah. fella that was left up thrown on top, up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thrown up on top, you know. But like it, we we thought we were on top of the world, you know. We thought we were absolutely in a place beyond, you know. And I remember then you'd you'd have to slide down the, when it got so high and it was it was. Dark, will say you would slide down the uh, the side you know mm-hmm. but I was talking to my, my lovely first cousin who of course Sean and I have to think about about Maureen and my and sadly my, my lovely late cousin Noreen who only passed away now as well yeah uh, our sympathies to you there Shane yeah beautiful beautiful oh, person yeah Oh, absolutely! Like we, they were all, we were, we were all involved in all of that. But Sean was just reminding me the other day. He's saying that he, being the youngest, he had a job of running around the bottom of the wind, and he'd have to pull out the hay right around the bottom. There was a little trick that uh, you wouldn't have it. Uh, you'd have a little, what well, be a little gully, for want of a better term, a little area, and he was like a little Jack Russell running around pulling out wisps of of hay at the bottom because that was the way it was done. And then one of the ways uh, then that you had to kind of fix the hay down was you'd make sugan, lovely long straw um, ropes, and that was done simply by twisting the hay that was there. I think we'd an old, you know, a handle that you'd have off a, off a, um, you know, a small short handle anyway, and you turn you turn that by hand and would twist and would make the lovely sugans, and then with the two prong pike, of course, you'd throw it over the top. Uh, guiding it over the top, and you'd tie it into the wind itself, then into the into the the hay on on the very side. And I remember as well, you'd often see it in in images as well. You might have known flower bag, or later on, you'd have the fertilizer bag sometimes up on top to keep the the worst of the rain, like like we had last night, yeah. uh, off the off the wind. You know, so it it was it was a everyone at hand. It was the mail. It was uh, everyone joining in. But what I loved then always. And I'm thinking of Noreen, especially when I think about this, that the girls then would come down and they'd have the bucket of tea. And that was the real the a refreshment. Bucket of tea. And a bucket of tea. So the tea was made in a bucket, okay? <laughs> it might have been an enamel bucket or a plastic bucket, yeah. something like that. But it would be too milky, to be the sugar would be in, the milk would be in, and the tea would be in grand and strong. And we'd all have a cup then, and we'd dip the cup into the bucket, and that was the way we sat down. We had our refreshments in the in the field that time, and then of course my aunt, my auntie Mary, and of course uh, Maureen and Noreen, everything. They'd be baking mad. There'd be all manner of fairy cakes, and there'd be lovely corny cake buffered, and everything would come down. God, it was a, a feast inside in the corner of the field. But you'd want to be careful because, of course, you had. Um, the skirt dons as well were around the the ticks. Oh, the we, ticks that time yeah. we took, yeah, we took little notice of the ticks. Really, that time, in fact, we were nearly excited by getting a tick because you'd have to take them out, you know. And there was there was always the the trick to getting out the tick was, of course, um, a took kind of cruel in a way. But you'd you'd light a match, of course, and you'd you'd blow it out and you'd tip the hot match to the back of the tick, and he'd be he'd come out fairly lively. No way. I, never after, that. After yeah. that. I never heard that. I never heard that trick. Yeah. Without, 
I heard yeah, about that, was, that leaving that any part of him inside there because it could be a disaster, oh. yeah. Oh, oh, could be, and, and I suppose people are interested at the ticks now. But we, to be honest, we thought the ticks were great fun. Yeah. They were part of the whole, the whole, the whole thing. But listen, no, it it was magnificent. I I loved. There's a few stories as well that and, I always. And, think and Shane, about and Shane, can I, can I hold you there? Because I'd love to hear those stories. But we'll go to break and uh, stay on, and we'll hear about those other wonderful stories. Great memories here from Shane Lehan about making the hay. And if you have great memories for us, you can text us 083-300-3300 or you can ring us on oh six six seven. One two three treble six. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Yeah, and we're talking to Shane Lahan, in addition to working in the Department of Folklore and Ethnology UCC, he's also the course director of Cultural and Heritage Studies at Cork College of Further Education and Training. And we're talking about the days of making the hay and the happier days, obviously, for farmers that are listening now at the moment trying to make hay. Um, but uh, it was a wonderful occasion and you described the mehel there as well, Shane. And that was, I suppose, the social element was huge in this, like all those activities that took place and were kind of all the worse for them now that that, that kind of thing doesn't um, take place they talk about rural isolation and all that um, you know it is a loss isn't it Oh it's a, huge, it's a huge loss you know and when you think back to that time I suppose it's all got to do with the economy of scale as well like people like like John Leary John the Grocer now my uncle like he really only had, had four cows that time you know and mm. you know it was a small scale operation but he, he didn't have all the equipment and all the stuff that people have, have now. But but even at that, like, I think it was Jackie Kennedy used to have the rake, as they called it, he used to have the machinery, whereas my uncle had the, the horse. Mm. So they got together, right? They didn't have one each, as it were. And so there was, he would be cutting the hay as well for the Kennedys at the same time, you know, so they were all helping each other out. But there was, there was fierce... The fierce fun as well and like you know there was a certain amount of like had you got the hay in you know and yeah. um, had you saved it there was people would be passing the road but they'd be looking at the quality of the swords were they straight were they cut was it done right had it been turned there was a kind of a people were as well keeping a high standard all the time because this job was survival if you mm. didn't do this properly if you didn't save your turf you know properly you were, you were in, in trouble there was no um system to support you otherwise so you'd you, suffer was, for the winter yeah you'd suffer yeah. and you know but there was there was some great stories there was a story I was looking at the other day I was reading the other day and about a man who was short hay you know and he, he came up in a way to a fella and uh, he said could I have a pike of hay and the man says yeah you can take a pike of hay there no problem well what did he do but he took the whole cock of hay up on top of the two prong pike and off with him down the road. <laughs> so, you know, that, that I, I often think of, you know, we, we, we used to love to see how much hay you could get onto the pike, you know, you keep putting it in the people, and all of a sudden the weight of that was something else. But think, thinking another one as well, Joe, that, that always, we often think of the, of like the storm now that was there last night, Storm Betty and so mm. on. But we had, we had what we called the, the Shigre, the, the fairy wind. Yes. And always in the stories of the, the fairy wind, it's actually cocks and winds of hay always end up in those stories. And when you think about it, there was sort of, I suppose we have different weather circumstances now, but there must have been something like a little mini tornadoes and so on that happened because the when you you had a cock of hay that went from one fellow's land, uh, maybe a mile down the road and landed up on top of a bridge or landed into a river yeah. uh, and so on. And people people 
had no explanation to that because it happened, right? There's absolutely no doubt about it. It yeah. happened. But but we now would know it meteorologically as a, a, a tornado or something that would will pull it up. And there are, there are loads of stories about the Shigwea fellas who were asleep uh, in a cockahe overnight, maybe coming home after, you know, four sheets to the wind, got hail and bohor, they'd be coming home, they might go to go to sleep and all of a sudden they were taken up and they were drowned or something like that. So the, the, the hay and the cocks of hay, they feature in all the folklore and all the stories as we go along. Yeah. Visually, I was just thinking there, like, it must be a spec- it must have been a spectacular sight to see it, you know, when, like, say, along, when you're looking at it from a distance and all the different farms and these wonderful yeah. cocks of hay with the little white square on top and, you know, um, it must have been a spectacular sight. It is, and, and it, it's almost like a part of the Irish idyll when you think back to my own late father, Tig, was, was an artist and he used to paint. And uh, he'd often go down, of course, when we were in Kerry, when we were working inside in the field. He was off, I suppose he was in Kiev having a few pints and, and <laughs> gaining, gaining inspiration for the big painting that he was going to, going to go at. But what, what was often interesting is that he would often put a attached house in the scene where there was no attached house, there would always be a, um, a stack of turf beside the, the gable end, a bit like Paul Henry would like. But there was always, always, always a haystack, or there was a, a, a there was fields full of those beautiful, as you say, uh, gorgeous sort of little small small uh, rounds of hay. Like we think about the round bales in the field now when when we when we go along the modern ones. But long ago, as you say, it was a part of the Irish idyll. It was a part of, and it was. It was visually a record of we're okay. The work is done. We have the hay in. There'll be enough for the animals. Be enough for the horses. Be enough for the cows. We're, we're done. You could see what was there. Yeah. And similarly with the with the turf stack, you knew you were okay. You you had your stock. You had your 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 support behind you, and it was done. And you you could say right, I'm okay for this winter. You know. Yeah. And do you know what I was thinking about there? And you were talking about it in kind of the the great detail you have about making the the cocks or the wines of hay. Um, is you know the trimming of the, the 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 cock to make sure the rain would flow off as well and like even in silage pits that are made now there's an art to kind of trimming the backs of them and the sides of them to make them well and some people are good at it and some people are, aren't so good at it but that's kind of a skill in itself and there was always kind of a, a, the right way of doing things as well when it came to this kind of a thing. You're absolutely right to see and and that's like there was there was a man said to me one time there's an art to everything as you just said it there Joe you know there's it there's there's always a right way and a wrong way to do it and those tiny incidental parts of what you would call our vernacular tradition or inherited tradition there are things that you can't record you, they only occur when you're doing it and there's a right way and a wrong way you learn by the do's and the don'ts and that's exactly it like we used to have to rake down the outside of the wines so that. The, the, the rain would, would, would trickle down that way and as Sean was saying to me he at the very base then instead of it hitting uh, in and soaking into the wine itself that you would you would pull out all those bits at the bottom so you had a kind of a, a gap between the wine and the ground itself so that the rain would trickle out into the ground so there was that sort of fine detail and there's a thing that I suppose that I spend a lot of time teaching my students about trying to understand that that w- there were different ways of living and different ways, different types of knowledge and that knowledge sadly as we move on to the world of increased mechanisation and modernisation those bits of information I suppose are, are gone and are totally not understood because people don't have context 
in which to understand them. Yeah, and I think that's why your article is so important. A few messages here, I'll get to them. Oh, uh, oh Joe, them skirtons were plentiful in the bog too and very hard to take out of the skin when they got stuck. And that comes in from an Art Kerry listener. Hi, Joe, enjoying the show in the stall. Patrick, thanks a million for that, Patrick. Anyone who enjoyed landing a tick never met a Mayo Skirton. Dracula's of the West. <laughs> that comes in from Sean Lyons. Dracula's of the West. Uh, hi Joe. Great memories of haymaking from Shane. My memories are of the small bales of hay and all the excitement today at the baling, making sure it was dry enough and them stacking the bales after baling. My mother then bringing this tea sandwiches and other goodies great day and great days and that comes in from Charles and this comes in from Agnes good morning Joe good morning Shane you have gold this morning we love Shane Lahan our Irish traditions are alive thanks to Shane and many more storytellers what a lovely message that is thanks a million Agnes good um and uh, more, more of these, a lot of memories can be in shade about uh, the hay here. Um, uh, Caller would like to draw attention to the men that cut the hay with a side before um, machinery took over. And that's true too, the cutting of the, the side. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's some very interesting stuff about the side, like the side, you, you, could, you could write a whole PhD thesis on the side in Ireland, like there's mm. so much to say about it, but keeping the side sharp was a big, big deal, you yes. know? And of course, you, you had you had a lovely sharpening stones. They used to come from Ballynock in granite granite stones, beautiful ones, um, and they used to be all sorts of different uh, shapes and forms to them. But one of the most interesting things is that there was a belief that if you had uh, a beetle or a, a cricket, if you could get a cricket, very often they used to have a little um, little box. Sometimes it was as small as a matchbox, one of the old matchboxes, and they'd fix that to the side of the of the handle of the twisted handle of the side. And people believed that if, if that beetle was alive inside in the little box attached to the handle, that the side would never go blunt. Yeah. That was one of the uh, the great great traditions and one of the great sort of uh, beliefs that people had. So you know there were some things I suppose Joe that were practical and there were other things that weren't as practical at all. You know. Yeah, and then, yeah, and another thought that's come into my head here, like we're saying about you know how important the hay, the haycocks were and all that. But there was a bit of a devilment too because I remember uh, I around my brothers and a few friends there was a field next to us and it was called the cuckoo field because the cuckoos used to come there and our neighbour who we learned how to cycle off and everything and elder elderly man Janji we used to go up onto the oxyhane and slide off them because they were great crack to get up on them and slide off them oh. but I remember one time I was thrown up on them but I was a bit too small to get off and I couldn't get off it and Janji was cycling up the road at 100 miles an hour and he came in and all the lads scattered and I was left on the haycock to meet Janji but in fairness to him he, he brought me down he said you're glad I'm not after you at all it's the rest of my want to get or whatever but <laughs> we used to have some crack at that too Oh, there was. And listen, as I, as I mentioned then, coming coming home in the evening, of course, the, without going into too much detail, they were the ideal uh, venue for a bit of uh, uh, a bit of lovey-dovey uh, and all of that sort of thing. So there was there was, there was was that element as well, and uh, uh, pe- people had to understand that. And you mentioned the cuckoo there. I, I often, I love, my, my mother used to, was born in April, and the old cant was, uh, the cuckoo comes in April, she sings her song in May. In June, she whistles a merry tune in July. She flies away, and then the phrase, of course, is that when the cuckoo sees the first cock of hay, she flies away. So July, traditionally in Ireland, was the time for doing the hay. You know that was like there are different times now, of course, and of course you do it, and, and you know, and I suppose the way in which 
mechanisation has happened with silage, as you say, Joe. It, it's a very changed tradition, you know. Mm-hmm. But listen, I, I wanted to mention two things, if I can, yeah. as as I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, one is my my um, great cousin Sean. Sean is doing Queen Queen of the Goats is at on at six o'clock this Sunday. He was meant to be doing yesterday, but because of the awful storm, he postponed it. So Sean is doing his little. Uh, alternative, if you like, to to puck fair that he started during the the COVID time. So I want to support him and wish him the best with that. But also, really importantly tonight, um, my lovely cousin Noreen, who sadly passed away, her lovely son Paddy, who's mm. got the most magnificent head of curls that you've ever seen and in your does, life. He does. He uh, does. I've seen him on video. <laughs> there, Bernard Casey was showing him. Yeah. Oh my God! But he's going for the head shave tonight in in and as a fundraiser. Uh, to raise all the money uh, that he possibly can to support the wonderful services for cancer and so on. So I want to wish him the best and to say to people, please, if you look up Paddy's head shave, please give him a few bob because it's for a great, great cause and it's for great love. Both uh, Katie and Paddy Noreen's uh, children and Patsy, her husband, uh, I think they all are beholden to the great services for cancer in Kerry and the bus services and all of that. Well done, well said. So that's Paddy's head shave. You can see it on social media and all those. I've seen it so yeah that's great so get and support that Shane it's been an absolute pleasure as always the messages are still coming in I'll read some of those out um, a little later on but Shane thanks a million for bringing us um, uh, that great article and you've you've wonderful articles there in the Farmers Journal I'd recommend anyone to go over and see them another one I wanted to talk to you about we'll talk about another time is about the, you know before before clocks and how people it, it took time it was absolutely okay. amazing to read that you have some great um, articles in there and it's so important to preserve them so Shane thanks Thanks a million for coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Joe. Great. Now, after the break, we'll have Donal O'Connor. And uh, Donal has some great memories of these times that we're talking about. So I'm looking forward to bringing him on um, from Tarbert. And everyone loves when Donal comes on the programme. So we'll take a break with him more after these. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Good morning, Joe. When talking about the festival, you have to, and this is the Rosa Tralee Festival, you have to mention Fawcett Circus. They have been a very important part of it, the excitement uh, when they arrive, and uh, the family are carrying on the tradition, including Mrs. Fawcett, 92 years young, great family. And, um, yeah, we would have... Um, um, I was involved in the Chaplin Festival in its first year and we struck up a great relationship with the Fawcett Circus. They used to come down to Waterville and then they'd do the Rose Tralee and then they'd go on to Electric Picnic or kind of in and around um, that time and what a wonderful family um, they are and they, they really treat that like an art form. It's absolutely um, spectacular, that circus. But Hertha Fawcett, the matriarch of the family, is a fascinating um, woman as well and a great story. So I saw... I saw um, driving in there this morning I saw the circus faucet uh, tent up so we wish them all the best and a big hearty welcome Um, best wishes to Norma Houlihan and Jamie Julian on their wedding day in Ballybunion today enjoy your special day lots of love from Martin, Miriam, Sinead and Roisin uh, Costello. My dad was a great man to use a side and minded it like gold. And again, like I said, there was an art form in that too. Wasn't there Donal O'Connor from Tarbert? Uh, the haymaking days we're talking about. Did you, do you use the side or have you ever used the side? No, Joe. I, I admired men that were using it from a distance because there was a, you had to keep well back from them. There was a great, uh, there was an aptness, but yeah. one little story that came to mind there when you mentioned the side. Mm. 
and the way they handled the older people handled uh, tips onto the younger crowd. My uncle was telling me one time he cut three acres. It, there was four acres in the plot, but there was definitely three acres of hay. And the year of the Congress in 1932, he cut that with his side for one pound ten shillings. You can imagine yeah. the amount of sweat it took to cut Whoa. three acres of hay with his side for thirty shillings. But he used to tell me a story about this man. He was very well off and he had a very good looking daughter. And there were lots of sources coming that would gladly take the place and take the daughter. But he had he was looking for a very much a macho man. And he himself was a very strong vigorous man. So he had two heaps of muddy earth in the in the yard in front of the house. And when the man had come to when that had kind of we'll say tipped around the verges, your man had said, No, he said, We'll do our test, he said. And he gave your man a shovel. Yeah. And they'd have to shovel he took one heap and uh, man that was looking for the dust took the other heap. And they had to shovel the heap in muck from one side to the other, about 10 feet away. Mm. So, fine anyway, in all the cases, the father beat them all. So eventually this man came that the daughter dust, the dust fancied. And she said to him, no, she said, what you'll do every time my father stops to clean his shovel, she said, you do the same and you'll beat him. So every time that the father stopped to clean the shovel off, the young fella did the same. And of course, he he'd been more vigorous than the older man. He won the competition. Because what was happening the others, they were so eager. And there was half a shovel full stuck onto the shovel, then giving us his time to clean it off. They were losing and over time, did yes. <laughs> they were losing over the time. I thought it was a great tip. But it was very much the case with the side, the edge. Yeah. Uh, they'd always tell you that uh, that alone had their shopping stone uh, on the, uh, laid by on the ground but they had one onto the board of the side as well and when they'd have the first one you would give it a tip of the final one yeah. so edge was edge was important and there was a beautiful but rhythm I, to that when you heard when you seen someone at it edging the even edging the side was, left to right left to right very I, nice I can remember all right afterwards now the same man and he opening the corn for the vapor and binds to come in and I had to cut around the edge to let the first one for the vapor and binder and uh, cutting the corn with the side but that was the only time I ever saw it use much except around the air cutting thistles or something it, it's day was gone by the time I got the farming really joke you know yeah 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 and, but, and, and tell us but about those, those memories the, the oldest memory I have is uh, my father and mother had a small shop in Bay Longford mm. and I'd be, I was born in 34 so when the war started I was just five years of age yeah. and I'd be packed over to my grandmother she was there with her only the only son that had stayed at home and I'd be there for the year and he used to do a lot of work for people with cutting hay and all that sort of stuff and but I remember as a young fella and as I was said my mind was going out in the meadow and making these little patch, bare patches in the field with all the small little bits of shells, mm. like eggshells. And what they were were the remains of the nests of the cotton cracks. Yes. And every field, maybe five or six acres, might have a couple of these nests in it. So it came onto my own turn then, when, and into the 50s when I'd be cutting the hay. And uh, 
you'll be cutting away just at the bedroom cut all around with the mulder and the next year you'll reach the last few strokes inside in the middle you'll see little chickens and you'll be trying to hunt them out not to cut the legs of them yeah. and you'll hunt them out and then after another bit of time again a bit more fertilizer maybe a bit of seeding and you were cutting into early July in the June early July and you were going through the nest of eggs and that was the Indian cotton creek mm. in rural Ireland and it was very hard to imagine that a bird that was so enormous could be more or less wiped out in in 20 years yeah due to mechanisation yeah mechanisation really was the and what I often wonder about him was there was so much land that would have been there wouldn't have been meadowing but he seemed to have some preference for the for the meadows for the, for the clean meadows yeah. which were his downfall really yeah. but uh, that would be my earliest memory of it but what I often think Joe when I, I think back now on the whole picture like I'm going into my 90s year now and what I'm thinking about the whole picture is at that time you had the whole lot was, was the war years definitely and you had compulsory tillage and you had to till the 20% of your arable land had to be tilled and the government really enforced that because they had inspectors gone around and if you didn't measure up your, your land was conscious case I believe at that particular time but side by side with that then you had the type of cow that was there as well Yeah, I mean you had the old the Chevy the Drummond the Moel and the Dexter they were the old heavy breeds now in the late we touched on there one time before we were talking the imported Scottish beef bulls that came in there in the late 1800s they were in, they improved the breed alloys but not for milking but what you had that time was a kind of a cow she'd calve and she'd milk away for a few months and from about August on she was going dry and she was putting it up on her back the condition to carry her over the winter or help carry her over the winter and uh, that also helped at the time because uh, the, the hay that was cut in to be cut like August to be the month main that was cut at that time when I was young for the, the food the feed value wouldn't be great in it you know yeah. but what, what they had to supplement it in of course was they had the mixed farming you had the turnip everybody had a half an acre of turnips half an acre of mangles a share of potatoes and when the cow calves you had the pulper you pulped them and you gave every one of them a bucket of half a bucket of turnips yeah. or mangoes as the case may be with a shake a meal on top of it and that took them over the helped protect them over the winter as well you know yeah 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 um, Don't stay with us because we have to go to um, a, a break and uh, uh, you always give us an old verse or something so I might get you to do something like that for us as well after the break and we've lots of messages uh, to get to but we're going to go to a break and we'll have more from Tarbert local historian and farmer Don O'Connor after these The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry 0667123666 for your calls. You can text WhatsApp 0833003300 for Shayla Han thanking him for the lovely memories. We love him so much from Maureen, his cousin. And thanks for that, Maureen. The wind that used to come and lift the straw up in the air was a whirlwind. You'd get them in the summertime, and it was a sign of fine weather. Caller remembers haymaking over 60 years ago and tourists taking 
pictures of them. They won't be chopping straw this year because of the weather. Caller used to have a bucket of water for picking up the frogs while his father made the hay. You'd collect up to 30 or 40 frogs and bring them home to the cats. Oh, jeepers. Those days are gone. And another caller remembers the potacons, potacons, the little rabbits that were found in the hay. Uh, Don, you don't remember any of those, do you? <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't know. I, could I face taking home the frogs for the cat? I couldn't I even look a, at that. Imagine the massacre. I have a cat all right, but I don't think I'd fancy feeding him frogs. Be more whiskers or but, something. Uh. Yeah, but uh, no, when, when I when I think back on the hair making, I mean, the machine we had come in when, when I uh, was... was uh, from the first days on and uh, people often you buy a half small machine for about 14 or 15 pounds so a lot of money that time because the cow was about 5 pounds so it was it was five, for 5 or 6 cows at that time to kind of you could use it as a conversion into today's money if we use that kind of a, a kind of an example but um, what I remember was the the increase in the in, in the volume then of the of hay as the as the fertilizer came into use. Yeah. And uh, long at that end the machine we had to improve because the old finger bar mobile was no longer able to cut it and gradually then the silos came in, they changed everything. But what one thing that has it is just as well that we see, we keep moving on all the time because I know that some of them cows are there at the moment. The Holstein or the Holstein Jersey Cross. If they were put back in the time there that I'm talking about them pre war and yeah. and there was no there was nothing for the liver fluke. There was nothing for the black water. And uh, people had huge losses in, in small cattle. Yeah. Especially coming two year olds. And uh, most of the cattle that we see at the moment there, uh, whether it must be the amount of meal they're being fed and that they couldn't have the output of meat that they have. So just everything keeps in step, really. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she just like the diseases and the humans. I mean, when I was going to school, a little chap with me died of uh, peritonitis. Yeah. And uh, fourth class. And uh, you had uh, tuberculosis. And you had uh, all the other different uh, diseases that were going, no antibiotics. So yeah. we've, we've come an awful long way in every in every respect, I think. Yeah. Um, before before we go on any further, I know you want to um, do a piece. You always bring a, a verse or, or a poem or a story that you've written, and uh, there's a special meaning to the one you've brought us this morning. So you might tell us about that. There, there is. I'll tell you now. About fifteen or sixteen years ago, I met a friend of mine. Since they got this, it's all Tom Donovan and the soul. You know, I used to be dabbling in the verse. I said, why don't you come to the Sanicade and there's a, a session on there uh, once a month. So I did, and that was maybe 15 or 18 years ago. And friends of mine now that have become friends because I've known them so long, they come in from all the surrounding areas into the stall that are Thursday night of every month. And we'd have a session, and the same in Bay Longford, the Tarbot, Nakanoa, and... Uh, you get to know the people so well now granted most of them would be they'd be even be as old as I am but some of them would be in their 60s and 70s and they'd all have an, an interest in the music and in the songs and in the 
gardens and all the rest. And the amount of enjoyment I've knocked out with over the last number of years, it, I, I couldn't describe it. But uh, the funny thing then, it was a chap here in town, but I'll just say that three of the people that I knew before that time, you could say, have passed away in the last month or so. Mm. You know, had Massimo Yatti from Bally Longford, and uh, he was killed in a car crash in Bally. And Tom Green from Ashley, a couple years ago, he had a fall when he was slipping a hedge. And yesterday, Mary Lynch from the store was buried, so that was three of the group to go there all the same as I was there. Yeah. And uh, talking about the hedge and just tying it up with that. There was a friend of mine here in Talbot today, Mary Sahawis, and saved, saved the Hayawis, and he used, he enjoys farm work, and uh, he uh, passed away there some years ago as well. So I wrote a little verse for him, and I just thought that I'd like to include my other three friends as well in it, yeah. and uh, I call it the Music Man. Very good. No more he'll swing his flashing side beside the Shannon Shore. No more he'll definitely wield his lawn in the bogs on me no more. No more he'll pipe the crystal I hear the summer sunbeams down. But the music man from Cabagon by the Lord was being called home. He took no music lessons, he owned no costly gear. But the gift of rhythm that he had was in his heart and dear. He played the music that he loved on the bones and the bourbon. And when Encore was called for, he'd sing the rocks of Bond. He was of that whole tradition that down centuries of strife kept our songs and music living to our precious darkest nights. And when freedom's flame was flickering in a time of hope and change, our songs and music helped us and that flame into a blaze. So one by one they leave us, their work and earth now done, but the legacy they left us will play on while we was one. And in sessions up in heaven, I'm sure the Lord will say, step forward to me again and let us hear you play. Made a lot of mercy and Mosmoriati, Mary Lynch and Tom Green and Tim Harrigan. Yeah, and of course, and please are with their families as well, Donal, as to yeah, you, their, yeah. their friends as well. Um, a wonderful uh, poem and a great tribute, uh, Donal. Yeah, um, just yeah. more messages there. Good morning again. Great to hear Donal O'Connor. More gold, says Agnes. And uh, caller mentions the Spalpine Fawnock, who got a penny a day for the work that they did sponsor me for it. That's right. I remember it well. Mm-hmm. Another, you know, Joe, good Joe, Joe, we used to be very good costume. A dear Margaret Maslanta, our mother going to see her MC cost follow, them screenshot, Latif's father. But we need to hear his tears to the couple, or fear he will have Walter, or tell him control to our course of father, so her soul and sponsor him in Spalpine Fawnock Fog, Michelle, Chasseville, Melanta, a shul and duke to Gumuk of Madness, a ballo gallavata, a knack for Kavan in love con winter, Sush na Fiatpiogavana, a brassock na Fonko, Goskan Malaga, a gaspisha gum consata. Wow, well done, there he goes. Yeah, you have a story for everything, Donald. <laughs> <laughs> there's three things there's three things there in that little team Nick ne- for come on in love convinced that was a weeping hook yeah and Sushtin was a thing Tashal Imahela Father Lanish Beshin on Slail for trashing the garden before the Tashal came in Nick for come on in love Sushtin was a Slail and now Fakpio Gwana did 
no, no, no sign of a spade. <laughs> he was giving it up. He was going fighting for fun. <laughs> well done, Dole. Dole, we're out of time. Um, you mentioned yeah, certainly right. there that you were in your, your 90th year. You're still farming away? Yeah, I am. I'd say it's kind of what we say. Uh, something that could be near the end of the town now it's uh, Joe yeah. I was playing this up to some months ago but I seemed to have got a touch of something like arthritis mm. and it was kind of stiff me but don't tongue it's still limber anyway. <laughs> there's no <laughs> doubt about that and there's proof of that this morning. Dole, it's always brilliant to, to bring you on and we have a few more topics that we have to get to uh, during the year as well and I'll bring you back on again to discuss them. But for now, Dole, thanks a million for coming on and, and uh, giving yeah. us those wonderful memories and knowledge as well. And what, yeah, do, you, you. what do you always say, Donald? Slán, Argus, Jamaican Slán to Gamahagus. Goodbye and good health. Good, good health to you too, Dole. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. That's good, the, luck, good luck. That's Dole Luck on her there. Um, it calling us, or we called him from Tarbert and uh, giving us his beautiful memories there. Always love bringing Dole on. Lots more to come in the next hour. We'll have our speaking of poetry with Bernadette Nureda. We'll be talking about the first Rose of Tralee Festival and lots more besides. We go to break, we'll have the news, and I'll talk to you again in the next hour. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. That is what you're listening to and I hope you're enjoying the programme so far. You're welcome along to the second hour if you've just joined us. 66 712 for your calls. You can text the WhatsApp 083 300 And you can email me with your photos for our Dominic Walsh in Focus Photography slot to jmcgill at Radio Kerry. Dot IE and the theme is My Great Escape and uh, Dominic has been sending me photos uh, during the week because he's up to his eyeballs in the Rosa Tralee, he's been all over the country and now I presume he's back in this county um, getting ready to take more great um, snaps and I see them on the front pages there, a few, a few snaps during the week some very creative photos, I'm looking forward to talking to him all about his experience and like I said, welcome to all the roses that are in the county and it's very special mention to our own Kerry Rose who is my cousin um, uh, Kelsey Lang McCarthy she is my first cousin Linda's daughter so um, we're very excited heading into uh, the um, festival and the competition itself and uh, we wish her all the very best indeed and uh, once in a lifetime an experience and I hope she enjoys it all and um, because of that I'm going to be talking a bit about the Rose of Tralee now but later on we will be having our in our uh, speaking of poetry slot with Bernadette Nereida and we're going to be speaking about the poet Maya Angelou or Maya Angelou um, depending how you pronounce it a fascinating life um, she uh, lived as well and we're also going to be talking about um, these uh, lecture series that's um, going to be taking place um, Monday August 21st starting at 6.30 sharp and uh, that is uh, around uh, following on from the successful 150th anniversary celebration of the Fenian Rising of 1867 and the part played by local Fenian uh, John Golden so we'll be talking about that um, as well but the Rosa Tralee, we did a very special series called Live from the Past where I go back as a reporter to a particular time in history and I report live from that time. And we did one on the very first Rosa Tralee. So we now go live to August 12th, 1959 and I'm there in Tralee where the first ever Rosa Tralee was just crowned. This documentary was produced by Connie Broderick and Joe McGill. 
It was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Joe McGill reports live from the past. As you join me here, I can tell you it's a lot quieter in Tralee Town this morning than it was last night when Dubliner Alice O'Sullivan became the first ever Rose of Tralee at a new event in the town which, going on last night, has a promising future. Now, joining me to tell us a little bit more about this maiden event is committee member Dan Nolan, who our listeners will know is managing director of the Curryman newspaper and Billy Clifford, a respected accountant with the rank organisation. Dan, I'll start with you. Can you tell me where this idea first came from? Well, about two years ago, the Irish Racing Board decided to extend the town's annual two-day race meeting at Ballybegan Racecourse to, to three days. Now, following this decision, it was suggested holding a carnival at the same time, with the centre of attraction being the selection of a, of a carnival queen. Now, this was well received in the town, uh, and a young lady named uh, Beatrice Spring was crowned the first new carnival queen. Now, again, this was run last year and was considered to be a great success. So myself and Billy and a few other local business people in the town, we met to discuss ways of, of, of improving it. Billy, if I can bring you in, what happened next? Well, as Dan alluded to there, we were looking at ways of improving and raising the profile of the carnival. Anyway, a group of us met in Roger Hartley's mobile and we decided to rename the carnival the Festival of Kerry. And we'd select a Rose of Tralee instead of a carnival queen. So this year, we spent £750 of a budget. We had, you know, we had over 1,500 tourists to the town. There were committees in New York and London and Birmingham. Dublin, they all sent contestants to compete for the title Rose of Tralee. It all culminated last night with Dublin Rose, Alice O'Sullivan, being crowned first ever Rose of Tralee. And on that note, I went along last night to witness the crowning of the first ever Rose of Tralee. The Ash Memorial Hall was the setting for the inaugural Rose of Tralee Festival. In front of a large attendance, Kevin Hilton, the event's compare, interviewed roses from New York, London, Birmingham, Dublin and, of course, Tralee. After deliberations from the judges, Dublin Rose Alice O'Sullivan was crowned the first ever Rose of Tralee. Joining me now, I'm happy to say, is the newly crowned Rosetree Alice O'Sullivan. Alice, you're very welcome. Can you put into words how you feel this morning? I'm just overjoyed. So happy. I still can't believe it. I can't stop smiling thinking about it. And well, you should. Just on last night, it's estimated that up to 80,000 thronged the town of Tralee. This was very special. Oh, it was. Leaving the hotel and going out to greet the crowd on Denny Street, I'll never forget that. It seemed like the whole town had come out to greet us. It was wonderful. And finally, Alice, uh, what will you take from the festival? What memories will you hold? The local people, the town, the enthusiasm was fantastic. 
my fellow roses. I was up there with Sheila Ann Horgan from New York, Kathleen Sheehy from Tralee and a few others from the UK. Even though it was only the first event of its kind, I think we have witnessed the birth of something very special. Thank you, Alice, and congratulations once again. Well, that's it here from a packed tralee, and hopefully we will hear about the Rosa tralee for years to come. This is Joe McGill reporting live from the past from Tralee Town, August 12th, 1959. So that gives you a flavour of where this festival, this wonderful festival, originated and uh, what a festival it's gone on to become. And I was looking during the week at um, irishcentral.com, that's a great website by the way, but um, they had like interesting facts about the Rose of Tralee and they talked about its origins that we just heard about there, but also they mentioned the, the song and legend has it that in the 19th century a wealthy merchant from Tralee fell in love with his maid with a difference in social class being taboo, the merchant immigrated returning years later to find his one true love had died of tuberculosis. So TB, heartbroken, he penned the famous song about his love for her, the Rose of Tralee. And uh, the there's uh, something else here I was looking at. Uh, it says, all the single ladies, it's only until the last 15 years that ladies whose ring finger is occupied can take part. Up until 2007, only single women were allowed to compete in the Rose of Tralee. <laughs> they say here, I wonder what Beyonce would say about that. And unmarried mothers were a no-no until the following year in 2008. And it says, warning, the Rose of Tralee is not a beauty contest. Don't be fooled by the lipstick tiaras and lovely gunas or dresses. The Roses of Tralee might have the appearance of a beauty pageant but the event proves substance over style as it does not score the entrance on their physical appearance. According to the festival organisers, the winning criteria is based on the aspirations, ambitions, intellect, social responsibility and Irish heritage of the women. And past roses include Noreen Culhane, New York Rose in 1970 who went on to become Executive Vice President of the New York Stock Exchange and Michelle McCormack who was the Chicago Rose in 1985 who won the prestigious Edward R. Morrow Award in uh, Journalism. Uh, Maria Walsh went on to become an MVP, didn't she? The winning rose of Tralee Formula. So, thinking you may be able to chance to win the coveted title, recent studies have shown that chances of winning are higher if you happen to be a brunette. And I find that hilarious when they're talking about, that we're not talking about appearances, but then all of a sudden this is in the criteria. <laughs> this is kind of, I suppose, the statistics. 76% of winners donning chestnut locks since the contest below began. So 76% have been um, brown hair. More often than that, Irish roses have won with North American roses coming a close second with the average age of winners being 24 and a half years of age. So that is the, the statistics um, uh, behind the whole uh, thing. And they say anything can happen on the Rose of Tralee um, that has its surprise moments from a dung spitting contest to fish being kissed to the host wearing high heels and even a marriage proposal. Uh, the Rose of Tralee is a, much watch, a must watch and there was all those um, wonderful moments and we'll see how um, it goes this year with Dahi and uh, Catherine uh, Thomas. So um, uh, yeah, the excitement is building and like I said, best look to my cousin Kelsey Lang
Bang uh, this weekend and if you're um, visiting the county, your family and friends of um, all the different roses, you're all very welcome and we all hope you have a great time and that you get a good Kerry welcome and go around and see as much of this beautiful county as you can while you're here because in every corner of it there is something amazing to explore and to see and to experience so enjoy yourself while you are here we're going to take a break we'll have more after these you're listening to the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry yeah, and I hope you're enjoying the program. 066 712 You can text WhatsApp 083 300 300. And uh, we've got a wonderful um, WhatsApp in here. Um, and I'm trying to kind of make it out, but it's a newspaper article about the Carnival Queen 1939. And during the Carnival, Mick O'Hare, uh, and I presume that's me all O'Hare, broadcast on the radio... Uh, truly a national first for the late Bill McCarthy workman, the grand national winner. Um, failed uh, to keep a date at the carnival, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to read it now. My, I, I, I didn't think I needed glasses, but I think I might need for this. But it's it, there's wonderful images in this as well. And um, thanks, million. Uh, is it Aileen? I think that sent us um, that in. So thanks, Aileen. Jeez, it's wonderful. Uh, you have framed there as well. That's a wonderful thing um, to ha- have. And um, the County Museum at the moment have um, a wonderful exhibition as well of the previous dresses uh, of the Rosa Tree as well. So that's uh, well worth checking out. And I mention um, a wonderful singer that you sing the Rosa Tree down through the years, Liam Heaslip as well. And lots of people getting in touch with different memories of um, the Rose of Tralee Festival down through the years. So you can keep those coming in, 06671. Uh, three treble six oh eight three three hundred three three hundred. Lots of people make a kind of a tradition out of um, watching um, the roses too. You know that night. Um, or the two, over the two nights, you know, kind of a goodie bag, kind of a late, late tie show kind of a vibe, if you know what I mean. Um, and some people would look at the odds and see uh, what uh, they tell them. And I think a very kind of um, a unique kind of a thing, I think it's a wonderful um, part to the festival now, is the rose buds as well. Um, that's really magical uh, uh, as well. Now, um, I want to tell you about this following on from the successful 150th anniversary celebration of the Fenian Rising of 1867 and the part played by the local Fenian, John Golden, celebrated in 2017. A continuation of the lecture series associated with events will be held on Monday. That's this Monday, August 24th, starting at 6 30 uh, sharp and it's taking place in Cauteen's pub in Kells and uh, speakers are Professor Morris Brick um, Emeritus Professor of History at UCD, Fenianism in its local context that's what he's going to be talking about Professor Liam Kennedy, Queen's University Belfast the death census of 1847 a window on the great famine in Kerry, that would be fascinating it's uh, Professor David Wilson University of Toronto Morton Moriarty and the Fenian Underground in Canada and uh, Mortimer or Morta Mortimer Moriarty, a native of Kilmacairn uh, Waterville. And music on the night will be by Coltus, uh, Coltus and Eva um, Amin's Choir. Booking essential, 10 euro per ticket. And you can contact 087 9887199 to reserve your seat. That is 087 9887199. 
0818-1899 and there's several um, websites as well so you've the you've um, www.walkoftheancestors.com and you've www.cortines.com c-a-i-t-i-n-s and there's a Facebook page as well um, there as well what a kills w-o-t-a uh, Kells is the Facebook there as well so that promises to be a great evening and because of that and we had mentioned a live from the past already we did a live from the past and um, speaking about John Golden I went live to the past to the 8th of August 1867 to Tralee at the trial of South Kerry Fenian John Golden for treason This documentary was produced by Connie Broderick and Joe McGill it was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Joe McGill reports live from the past. As you join me here outside the courthouse in Tralee, the mood is sombre, as the verdict has just been read out in the trial of South Caribbean John Golden for treason. John Golden was born at Kells, Carrasabine in 1845. Evidence suggests that Golden was a carpenter who as a teenager joined the local Filemore Fenians. Perhaps his membership relates to an incident from his childhood in which his father's landlord, Blinner Hassett, shot his dog. This event is likely to have increased Golden's hatred of British rule in Ireland. Earlier in the year, John was involved in a rebellion in Kerry against the government and this is why he stands trial today. Earlier I visited Carsevine and spoke to J.J. O'Connor, who was involved in the rebellion himself. The Fenians of the Evera Peninsula of South Kerry had been trained by Mr. O'Connor, who was an ex-Lieutenant Colonel of the Union Army, fighting in the American Civil War. We planned a rebellion against the British government for February of this year, but this event was subsequently postponed. However, here in South Kerry, we did not receive this news and we rose in arms on the 12th of February. About 30 of us left Carsevine at 10pm and travelled to Kells to join with John Golden and the file Morphenians, cutting the telegraph wires along the way. Tell us what happened at Kells. Well, at Kells, Golden played a leading role in the raid of the Kells Coast Guard station. The group reached the station at 1am on Ash Wednesday. They first encountered the Coast Guard Thomas Pierce, who was on duty that night. When he challenged them, one Fenian, possibly Golden, as leader, called out, Surrender or your life is taken. A shot was then fired and Pierce ran away towards the beach. The Fenians left and proceeded to break into the watch house from which they stole five rifles, uh, four pistols, uh, gunpowder, rifle ammunition and belts. And what happened then? Well, from here we advanced to Coast Guard Boyd's house. Only the Coast Guard's wife, Mrs. Boyd, and another Coast Guard's wife, uh, Mrs. O'Brien, were present. It was uh, Mrs. O'Brien who recognised Golden as a nearby farmer's son and as a man who went to the same church as she did. We assured the two women that they would not be harmed, of course. Uh, Golden found no arms in the Boyd house, and so we moved on to Coast Guard O'Brien's house, searching Thomas Pierce's open house on our way. Uh, no ammunition was found at either house, after which Mrs. O'Brien was accompanied safely back to Mrs. Boyd's house. And what happened next? Well, as we went on our way, we met Constable Duggan of Killardon RIC at Trungbridge, who was then shot. We carried Duggan to a local cottage and summoned the priest. By 7.30am we had reached Glimbe, by at which point we knew that our rebellion was in vain. Yet, what could we do? We continued on our journey towards Killarney. However, by the following morning we had disbanded and were returning home, avoiding roads, police and soldiers. And John Golden, what became of him? 
Well, Golden was unable to return home as his house was under surveillance and searched on the 14th of February and again in March of this year. He did return, though, to Carcerine and remained in hiding in Kilo and Kimego before making his way to Liverpool. From there, he wrote a letter to us here in Carcerine and informed us of his plan to travel to America on board the Propontis. However, this information was leaked and police captured Golden on the 19th of July in Queenstown in Cork. When arrested, Golden gave his name as John Neal and held a passage ticket and two documents certifying his name. A Carcevine Fenian member joining me there earlier. And this is where we are today, at the trial of John Golden. After the case was closed for the Crown, Mr Waters addressed the jury for the defence, after which Mr Hen replied on behalf of the Crown. Judge Kyo then summed up the case for the jury and they retired to deliberate this for 40 minutes, after which they returned a guilty verdict against Golden. As Golden was taken from the docks, he waved unconcerned and smiled to his associates in the gallery. At a later stage, Golden stood beside the Fenian Jim O'Reilly to hear his sentence, and both men took it calmly. Now joining me to talk about John Golden's sentence and what is next for the South Kerry man is counsel for the defence, Mr Waters. Mr. Waters, what sentence did Mr. Golden receive? Mr. Golden was sentenced to seven years imprisonment and transportation to Van Diemen's land. In reality, he will probably be transported to Fremantle Penal Settlement in Western Australia. This will be a heavy burden not only for John to bear, but also his family. Yes, Joe. As you know, John will not likely ever see Kerry again, and his family has waved their last goodbye to him. It's particularly sad for his mother who walked 42 miles from Kells to Tralee for her son's trial while heavily pregnant with her eighth child. After the trial, Mary Golden will return home by foot to give birth in the next few weeks to a brother or sister that John will probably never meet. Thank you for talking to me. Following Golden's trial here in Tralee, he will be taken to Mountjoy Jail in Dublin. From there, he will be sent to Portland, England, where he will be detained in prison until boarding the Hugomont bound for Western Australia to live out the remainder of his life, never to see these shores again. This is Joe McGill reporting live from the past, Tralee, on the 8th of August, 1867. Yeah, the fascinating story there of uh, John Golden, a Fenian, and uh, imagine back then, you know, when you'd be shipped off to Van Diemen's Land and that was it and the way the mother walked all those miles as well. And then even, you know, when you talk about the famine times for smaller um, crimes, like stealing, you know, food for family um, and different things like that, what went on was uh, quite scary. And then, but then what those people went on to do in those countries in Australia and places, and they built them, you know. So it's uh, fascinating. But that is, um, I said I'd play that for you this morning because there is that lecture series um, following on uh, from the successful 150th anniversary celebration of the Fenian Rising in 18, of 1867 and the part played by local Fenian John Golden celebrated in 2017. A continuation of the lecture series associated with events will be held on Monday, this Monday, starting at 6.30pm, sharp in Cotheen's pub. And the speakers will be Professor Morris Brick, um, Professor Liam Kennedy, and Professor David uh, Wilson. And uh, the topics there will be Fenianism in its local context, the death census of 1847, a window on the Great Famine in Kerry, and uh, also um, Murta Moriarty and the Fenian Underground in Canada. There will be music by Coltus and Ira Min's Choir. And like I said, if you want to book a ticket, it's 10 euro. Book essential to reserve your, se- reserve your seat. 087 988 
nine. And uh, best of luck with that um, event. It uh, promises to be a good one. Um, good morning, Joel. The first Carnival Queen in Tralee was Doreen Sheehy from Ballymullen, 1957. I was there as she was crowned um, on trailer in Dinny Street. Yours faithfully, Connie Turner in Tralee. Thanks, Connie, for that um, wonderful uh, memory. And uh, lots of uh, different memories coming in as well and people looking forward to the Rose of Tralee. And uh, just driving in this morning, actually, it was great to see all the Kerry flags are up um, there, you know, from the, all the All-Irelands we were in. And uh, the town is looking well, so that's um, great to see as well. Now, we're going to take a break. And after that, we'll have our Speaking of Poetry with renowned poet Bernadette Nerida. You're listening to the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Oh, it is the third Saturday of the month, so that means it's time for our Speaking of Poetry slot with renowned poet Bernadette Nierida. Bernadette, how are you? I'm grand. I suppose the biggest complaint everyone has now is the weather. It's playing tricks with us. I mean, one it day is fine and one day is wet. And these days, it's not great weather for saving hay, that's for sure, anyway. <laughs> yeah, and we were speaking of hay in the first hour. What, any hay memories for us? I'll Don't say you, hay fever, no. <laughs> no, I won't, I won't do the hay fever. I'll tell you just a quick one. Um, I'm going back a bit in time now where there'd be a horse-drawn kind of a hay cart, we used to call it. But, you know, the, the wines of hay, where they'd, they'd have to be cranked up onto it. So you'd either get three or four or five of us could jump onto it on when the man would be going over to the field. And then we used to sit up at the back and he'd be cranking up the thing. And it was a great crack and the fun we have. But, do you know, just talking about it, the sound of that hay cart, it wasn't rubber wheels, as I remember. Mm. It was kind of... Um, a creaky sound that's kind of a lovely slow so that's a lovely memory for me now so you, yeah, you can send the me old into band a, wheels yeah, yeah, yeah you can send me into a trance now I could go thinking yeah. about that but anyway <laughs> yeah no it has it, it does trigger a lot of memories in the stand fabulous or even yeah. the smell of hay the smell mm. of fresh hay and all that fabulous yeah yeah now so as you know at home Bernadette usually picks her poet of the month so and she usually picks a belter every month and the standard is always high so no pressure Bernadette who have you gone with this month? <laughs> no pressure is right I hope I'm pronouncing her name right anyway but I've checked it it's um, an, an American poet Maya Angelou or mm. Angelou Angelou but anyway she's well known I think Joe she's, she's known all over the world and just before Bernadette goes on a bit of a health warning here we'll be talking about adult themes so if there's young years just maybe you can take them away from the radio away you go Bernadette um, absolutely unbelievable the life she had and you know how she emerged you know through it I should say but anyway look I'll just build up a little picture of her background she was born in St. Louis in Missouri in 1928 and interestingly enough when she was born she was Marguerite Ann Johnson but she became known to everyone as Maya Angelou and I'll just better explain that a small bit so the name Maya this was a nickname given to her by her brother Bailey and I think that mm. Bailey was her older brother I think he was her only sibling and then the surname she married a man called Tosh now that's an abbreviation of a longer name Tosh Ang Angelos A-N-G-E-L-O-S and he worked in the US Navy and I think they got married in 1949 but they were divorced again three or four years later but for some reason, and I suppose the poet herself only knows really, but she adopted a slightly changed version of his surname, to, you know, from Angelus to Angelo, and she kept this throughout her life. 
Now, mm. they divorced on whatever her reason, but look, that's that's beside the point. She must have had her reasons for that. Mm. But then her parents, um, when I say it was a very fractious marriage, I'd say that's probably um, a mild way of putting it, and they subsequently divorced. And God, talk about being traumatized as a child, but... Anyway, Maya went to live with her paternal grandmother in Arkansas at a very early age. She was very, very young. So when she was still only seven, which is still extremely young, she did come back to the mother's care just for a brief time. And this was something dreadful happened to the poor child. The mother had a boyfriend and he subsequently raped Maya. Now he was later arrested and jailed for it. And then after he was released from jail, he was attacked and died as a result and it is strongly believed that it was Maya's uncles who carried out the fatal attack on him so now apart from being traumatised because of the rape Angelou was now doubly traumatised because she felt because she had spoken out it had led to the man's death and the effect this had on her she became mute for about six years which is a dreadful thing to happen and she did go back to Arkansas to her grandmother and she stayed there then until she was into her early teens. So that's kind of her her start in life, if you will. Yeah, that's, but, that must have had, I can't even imagine, a devastating effect. And even you see the actual effect of, yeah, of not being able to speak to then speak. after it. Like yeah. she shut down completely because the poor child, she thought, oh, because I spoke out of what was done, which she was right to speak out, of course, but now he's dead and she still she blamed herself for that and it, it really shut her down and I mean that will tell you the extent of the trauma uh, that she felt that she would actually go mute when she was only a child you know and she didn't speak I think for about I think around six years she stayed mute well, internalised everything it, 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 it's further amazing when you go on to the think of the voice she became and known for her actual voice that's, and then her poetic voice as well. But isn't that that's a, the amazing thing? Like, I mean, mm. she she kind of did emerge from it, as you know, as we will talk about. But like to have that beginning, um, light up into her early teens, like, and to have all that in her head and the weight of it, if you like, and yet, you know, that that she came she came out of it, like, but you know, that was an awful start for her. But like this was this was kind of um, setting up her her family and everything. And she did write a poem because her family, you know, she was always kind of, she had a brother. And as I say, she did get married and get divorced and all that herself. But she wrote a poem called Kin. And I think, and she dedicated to her brother Bailey and he was her only, her only sibling. So I'll read that one now anyway. Do. We were entwined in red rings of blood and loneliness before the first snows fell. Before muddy rivers seeded clouds above a virgin forest and men ran naked, blue and black, skinned into the warm embraces of Sheba, Eve and Lilith, I was your sister. You left me to four strangers into brother molds, exacting taxations they never owed or could pay. You fought to die, thinking in destruction lies the seed of birth. You may be right. I will remember silent walks in southern woods and long talks in low voices, shielding meaning from the big ears of over-curious adults. You may be right. Your slow return from regions of terror and bloody screams races my heart. I hear again the laughter of children and see fireflies bursting tiny explosions in an Arkansas twilight. 
Now, she would have gone to, our, sorry, her, his, her brother, Bailey, would have gone to Arkansas with her to the grandparent. And obviously there she's, she called it like kin and she dedicated to him. But that was obviously their childhood and bits of it and uh, when they grew up and things that he might have done and so on. Mm. But getting back to, to Maya, I think that her interest in the written word and the English language was evident from a, a very early age. And throughout her childhood, you know, she would have written essays, poetry, and she also kept a journal. So she was kind of into, maybe because she had internalized so much, maybe this was a way of externalizing things. But when she returned to Arkansas, and this was in her early teens, <clears throat> she took an interest in poetry and she started memorizing works by the likes of Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe. So she really, she really was drawn into this. And... I suppose, Joe, to, to be fair and to say, like, there's no one could argue, but she distinguished herself, but not just in the world of literary, literary events or writings. And there's no doubt, like, that she's famous for her work as a poet, but she did so many other things as well. She had written a um, couple of autobiographies, and I read some of them years ago. She was a civil rights activist, and she worked with the likes of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And she also worked in entertainment as a singer, a dancer, an actor, and a director. Now, mm. talk about having um, uh, several kind of um, um, bows, or what's the, what's the saying? Several, several, several strings to strings her bow. And, and also, like, you know, she was a woman growing up at a particular time when it was challenging for women, but she was a black woman as well. Yes. Um, yeah. Growing up in the South yeah. as well, you know, so... Yeah. Um, uh, and all that, that goes with that as well. That's exactly. I mean, if you think about it, she was born in 1928 uh, in Missouri. So, I mean, she was born into the height of, like, you know, what she must have experienced, even from, you know, racism and all that we've been going on. And I know that, that the likes of Malcolm X, like, who, like the, there are two people, if you mention human rights and activists and civil liberties at that time, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X are two men that come straight to mind. And she was a great friend of Malcolm X. And I think that when he, he was shot... Uh, he had been living uh, outside of America and he came back and I think he was shot and I think she went uh, again she, I think she went quietly uh, Where did, I can't remember where she went to live for a while I suppose it, her, he, you know, he was a great friend of hers mm. but I mean talk about um, a life that has a million things in it and it wasn't just her achievements it was all the trauma and the, the, I, I mean we're only skimming, skimming the surface here but mm. there was to give a flavour of that there's a poem she wrote called A Plagued Journey. And I'll read that one now. And it, I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of, a, you know, it, it gives that scene of her life. There is no warning rattle at the door, nor heavy feet to stomp the fireboards. Safe in the dark prison, I know that light slides over the fingered work of a toothless woman in Pakistan. Happy prints of an invisible time are illumined. My mouth agape, rejects the solid air and lungs hold. The invader takes direction and seeps through the plaster walls. It is at my chamber, entering the keyhole, pushing through the padding of the door. I cannot scream. A bone of fear clogs my throat. It is upon me. It is sunrise, with hope its arrogant rider. My mind formerly quiescent in its snug encasement is strained to look upon their rapturous visages to let them enter even into me 
I am forced outside myself to mount the light and ride joined with hope. Through all the bright hours, I cling to expectation until darkness comes to reclaim me as its own. Hope fades, days gone into its irredeemable place, and I am thrown back into the familiar bonds of disconsolation. Gloom crawls around, lapping lasciviously between my toes, at my ankles, and it sucks the strands of my hair. It forgives my heady fling with hope. I am joined again into its greedy arms. So it's like, um, it's almost like, you know, waves of hope and trying and being knocked back. That's, I'm getting that from that poem, you know, which I'd yeah. say would kind of paint a picture of her life and all the things. She was a trier anyway, and she succeeded as well, you know. Yeah, I'm actually hearing her voice as you're you're talking about because her voice was so distinctive. It was like jazz. It was kind of deeper and smooth. Um, yes. But her poetry there from just the two poems you read, it's very raw and visceral, isn't it? Like it is. Very kind of, it yeah. is. Oh, it's. I'd say straight from her feelings. Do you know that kind of a way? Yeah. And um, I think that. You know, I'd say her poetry came out of her life. And I know, look, you could say that about any poet. And, you know, if you experience something or experience it through somebody else's whatever, you know, it might be the seeds of it. But I think in hers, like you get, it's like a bit of her life story is is chipped into the poems in that way. But I, I think in a way as well, she must have been someone that never gave up hope. She never quit. And I was... Um, at some stage, I must have listened to her. She was saying something on um, some documentary or something I was watching. Um, and as far as I can remember, it's a while ago since I heard this, what she mentioned about writing. And she had a very deep, deep voice, unbelievably deep. But she mentioned about writing, and she said that she mentioned off, you know, all the nouns, the verbs, the adverbs, and all of that. And she said the writer takes these, and it's what they do with them that makes the reader say, oh, I never looked at that that way. And I thought that was that has stayed with me. I thought that was an interesting kind of an observation about writing. That I suppose whether you're writing prose or poetry, you're arranging your words in your way from your slant. I suppose if I can put it that way. Yeah. Very good. And we're going to be hearing more from Bernadette after this break. And before I do that, if you were affected by our chat there this morning, you can contact the Kerry Rape and Sexual Abuse Centre on free phone eighteen hundred six double three triple three. We'll take a break with more after this. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now, I hope you're enjoying the Saturday Supplement. This is our speaking of poetry slot with Bernadette Neareda. We're talking about Maya Angelou, an American poet, an icon, I'd say it's fair to say, and to Bernadette, because you mentioned Martin Luther King, you mentioned Malcolm X. I know I watched a documentary when we were kings about famous heavyweight fighters, and Muhammad Ali was in that, and she was used, you know, a kind of throughout that documentary as well, and she's used a lot in popular culture to kind of put... I suppose, to put rhyme or reason to things that are happening at that time. Yes, and I think that to the, the you know, the African-American culture, she is, like, uh, really important. And, I mean, and it's obviously why, because she was such um, not When I say fighter, I, I mean overcoming things and that she survived and succeeded. That's, I suppose, the point I'm trying to make. But, you know, you made a point there earlier, um, and I, you, you mentioned about her poetry, that it was kind of, um, you know straight from you know that it was it was so kind of uh, real yeah yeah yeah. but 
and that's the point really that's the point I wanted to make and pick up on what you said like her poetry because it was inspired and I think informed by her life and her work you know it had that and I think that it was her externalization of what was deeply personal to her and I think many people say that, that that's what made her poems you know so powerful and profound and memorable which is what you know one of the things about a good poem is when it's memorable but I think over the course of her life, and she, I said she was born in 1928, was it? Yeah, well, she passed away in 2014. But she, she captured, provoked, inspired, and she really did transform, you know, the American people and their culture. She really was instrumental, and she was a strong figure in that. And that's why, as you mentioned about her being an icon, she certainly is. But um, the, the uh, former President Barack Obama, he described her as a brilliant writer, a fierce friend, and a truly phenomenal woman. And I know that's one of the titles of her poem, but it's a very long poem, and I won't I won't read that one. She read her poem called On the Pulse of the Morning at the first inauguration of former President Bill Clinton in 1993. And like I think that she was only the... I think she was the first woman to ever read a poem at an, an inauguration. Now, when it comes, Joe, to her accolades and her awards and everything... I, you know, I, you, we'd be here till supper time, as they used to say, if I was to try and list them out. <laughs> I could already imagine, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, and rightly so, but she received more than 30 honorary degrees. And it wasn't just the universities that acknowledged and awarded her, but several literary organizations and government agencies, they all put out and awarded her, recognized her in different ways. And, I, you know, it's good to hear that because she had, her life is, it's not that it's unbelievable, but maybe it's hard to imagine, in a sense, the fact that, you know, that mm. she survived. Now, she was presented with a National Medal of Arts by Bill Clinton, and that was in 2000. And again, well-deserved. But in 2010, President Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And this is the highest honour that can be given to a civilian in the United States. So, and I, again, I, I think it's richly deserved. So she became, I think, one of the most influential African-Americans in modern history. But again, and I mentioned this earlier, but I just sum it up and round it up. She was a writer, a poet, a songwriter, a Broadway actress, film director, humanitarian and civil rights activist. So as you mentioned about having so many strings to her bow, but there is a poem and I have a feeling it's a very well-known poem and I'd love to read it. It's like, I think it has become her anthem, but I think a lot of people and organizations who've had to struggle I think they would refer to this poem and maybe quote it and use it. So I'll read that one anyway called Still I Rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still, I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Cause I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. 
Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. That is, Whoa. to me, that poem is came from her heart and her soul and from everything she'd experienced. But it's a victory poem, I think, anyway. I don't know if you would agree with me. Do you know what I mean? That yeah, yeah, no, completely. And it's um, it soars and soars as it goes, doesn't it? And yeah. It's getting more and more powerful and more yeah. empowering as well. And, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's brilliant. And like... I can almost hear it in a song. I, th I think it has been covered in a song, but I th yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And I can see why people would would kind of adapt it to suit their own situations because she's almost saying in that poem that no matter what you throw at me, I'll come back. Yeah. You know, you won't put me down, and if you do, I'll still get up. You know that there's, it's not an aggressive poem, but there's there's fighting talk in it. In a nice, I mean that in a nice way. You know that she's she's talk about triumph in the face of adversity. But I think that is yeah. that's why so many people kind of know it or read it or get something out of it. Because look, there is no one going to go through life without the you know, upsets and troubles. Life isn't all about just, you know, the fine day and everything going well. So but I think it's a powerful yeah. poem. I really do. Yeah, and the last few lines, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. The slave. I rise, I yeah. rise, I rise. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. Um, Bernadette, you haven't failed us again. Another great <laughs> poet you brought us. You you keep uh, bringing us a great poet every month. And uh, it's great. I, I just love that. It's the stories, isn't it, about these poets? I think it's yeah. their life stories as well. And we're, I know we're summing it up in such a short space of time. Yes. But um, it, it's beautiful to hear the kind of poetry in because it, kind of, it gives you a better understanding standing of the poems as well it does you know, once you know it, the person behind yeah them. and i think that's an interesting thing like that when you when you go in and you rightly say we're only just it's little snapshots of their lives but mm. it is interesting to find out you know where they began how their life was and when they kind of came to writing or writing poetry or whatever they did and it gives another dimension to their poetry and you're quite right i agree with that i think it does you know yeah excellent bernadette thanks a million thank for you Joe. another one Thank you. That's Bernadette Nerea that they are speaking of poetry, and I look forward to the poet that Bernadette will bring us <laughs> next week. That's all we have time for on the programme this morning. My thanks to Abigail Bernard, who was on sound. Frank Lewis will be with you next Saturday morning with his Walks programme from 9am, and I'll join you again uh, on the following Saturday. On to then, look after yourself and take care. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry 103.7.